Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's a sunny day in early August, 1943. We're in Nassau, the capital city of the Bahamas. The Caribbean sun beats down from a clear blue sky. Private investigator Ray Schindler takes a short drive in a gleaming Lincoln Continental Coupe convertible. The 4.8-liter engine purrs soothingly as he navigates the palm tree-lined streets with the top down. The car isn't Ray's. It belongs to Count Marie Alfred Foucault de Medigny, Freddy to his friends. But Freddy doesn't have much use for it at the moment. He's locked up in a police cell, accused of murdering his father-in-law, the multimillionaire Sir Harry Oakes, and Ray's doing everything he can to get him off. So Freddy doesn't object to him using his car now and then, if it'll help. Ray turns into a driveway. The sign at the gate says Westbourne. Ray looks up at the house he's heard so much about, but is now seeing for the first time. Sir Harry Oak's colonial-style mansion. It was here, at Westbourne, that Oakes was murdered, in his bedroom upstairs. The police say Freddie did it. Freddie says he didn't. He claims that he was at home, in bed, when Oakes was killed. Ray's beginning to believe he may be telling the truth. He's come here today to see if he can prove it. Inside the property, Ray may find the evidence to confirm Freddie's innocence. Alternatively, what he discovers may bolster the prosecution's case and help condemn his client to death. Either way, Ray will go wherever the evidence leads. But can other more powerful individuals be trusted to do the same? My name is Mark Dodson. From Noiser, this is part two of Murder in Paradise. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Oakes' house, Westbourne, has an abandoned air about it. A blaze of pink bursts over the walls. Bougainvillea are in full bloom. Kind of out of control is more like it. It almost swamps the building. The shutters on the ground floor windows are down closing the interior off from the prying eyes of sightseers with a taste for the macabre. A wooden balcony runs along the whole of the upper story, the perfect place to sit and enjoy a sundowner or two. At least it was before the murder. Ray calls out as he mounts the steps to the entrance. A moment later, the front door is open and he's greeted by two men. These must be Captain Edward Melchin and Captain James Barker from the Miami Police Department. It's a little odd they're here at all, given the Bahamas is a British colony and certainly doesn't fall under Miami police jurisdiction. At 50 years old, Captain Edward Melchin is an experienced detective with over 500 homicide cases to his name. Short and stocky, 
Melchin's body language exudes confidence. He eyes Ray complacently from behind a pair of silver wire framed glasses. Ray's seen his type before, the type who are so sure they're right. They've closed their minds to any other possibility. In Ray's experience, this is rarely the sign of a good detective. Melchin's partner is Captain James Barker. Now, he's about 10 years younger, taller, and leaner. Barker is a forensics expert. His specialty is fingerprints. If anything, he seems even more confident than Melchin, with a condescending smirk permanently in place. The two men are offhand with Ray. They make it clear they've got more important things to do than talk to a P.I. As the two homicide detectives take Ray upstairs, they remind him of the strict conditions placed on his investigation. It's true. Ray has been granted permission by the prosecuting attorney to examine the crime scene, but he's not allowed to look for evidence against any other suspect. He has to limit himself to finding proof of Freddy's innocence. Ray asks the two cops how they can be so sure they've got their man. Melchin says he knew it as soon as he examined Freddy's hands and wrists with a magnifying glass. He could clearly see that some of his hairs were singed, proof he set the fire in the dead man's room. Ray remembers the conversation he had with Freddy's cousin. He told him about Freddy burning himself when he lit some hurricane lamps on the night of the murder. He tells Melchin that the cop won't entertain the idea. At last, they reach the crime scene. Ray stands on the threshold for a moment. He takes a deep breath and steps forward into the room where Harry Oakes was brutally murdered. Even though he's an experienced detective, Ray is shaken by the grim sight that meets his eyes. Bloodstains smear the walls. Rust-colored marks spot the carpet in places pooling into larger areas of darkness. Taking a closer look at his surroundings, Ray's attention is caught by some distinctive scorching on the wallpaper. The marks are uniform and seem unusually focused, as if caused by a narrow blast of flame pointing in one direction. To Ray's eye, it looks like somebody used a blowtorch. And yet, no mention of this has been made in the report made by the Miami detectives. Is it negligence or worse? A cover-up? If they failed to notice this potentially important evidence, what else have they missed? Or willfully chosen to ignore? The focal point of the destruction is the bed. By now, Oaks's body has been removed. But the evidence of what was done to it is still there in the blood-soaked mattress, which is also badly charred. The mosquito net around the bed hangs in blackened tatters. A glass with Oaks's false teeth in it still stands on the bedside table. As Ray takes in the gruesome scene, the two cops watch him like hawks. Ray doesn't let him intimidate him. He crosses to one of the windows and draws their attention to some bloody handprints on the glass. He asks them if they've identified who they belong to. Captain Barker replies, the fingers were stubby, and the Medanese were not, so we dismissed them. 
Rain now knows for sure that the American detectives have deliberately ignored evidence that may indicate another suspect. The question is, why? Do they genuinely believe they have enough evidence to prove that Freddy was Oak's murderer? Or have they been directed to come to that conclusion right from the outset? If that's the case, who's directing them? To Ray's mind, the most likely answer is the governor. He did, after all, intervene personally to bring the Americans in. Okay, let's stop for a moment to think about this. Now remember that in 1943, the governor of the Bahamas is not some faceless bureaucrat. He's the Duke of Windsor, the former British King Edward VIII, a man with power and influence that extends far beyond the island's sandy beaches. But why on earth would he want to involve himself in some backwater murder investigation? Is it possible that he's gotten involved in the Oaks case because he has something to hide? Or is he perhaps protecting someone close to him? Ray's asking himself these very questions, but for now, decides to keep them under his hat. Wouldn't you? He may be the best private detective money can buy, but he's no match for the British monarchy. Instead, he turns his attention back to the crime scene. He asks Melchin and Barker if they found any proof that Freddy was there the night Oakes was murdered. Barker's smirk cranks up a notch. He shows Ray a wooden Chinese screen from which he claims he lifted a print of Demetigny's little finger. Lifted is the term used when a forensic expert uses adhesive tape to remove a fingerprint from an object so that it can be taken away and examined. It doesn't prove that Freddy was the murderer, but it does suggest that he was there that night. If so, Freddy knows more about the murder than he's been letting on. Now, Ray doesn't know if he can trust his client anymore. Usually, when that happens, it's time to walk away from a case. Ray Schindler isn't a quitter. He's pretty sure someone's lying to him and he's determined to find out who. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus? For more information, head to noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. Back in his hotel, Ray calls Freddie's wife, Nancy. She's staying with her mother in Bar Harbor, Maine. Nancy is his employer, after all, the one who gave him the task of clearing her husband of her father's murder. Ray needs to break the news about the incriminating fingerprint, as difficult as it'll be for her to hear. But to his surprise, Nancy doesn't seem particularly dismayed. She tells Ray that the day after Oakes's funeral, she and her mother received a visit 
from Melchin and Barker in person. Captain Barker told them that Freddy's prints were all over the crime scene. Now, this contradicts what Barker told Ray. He said he'd only been able to lift a single fingerprint from Freddy's little finger off the Chinese screen. Ray would hardly describe a single fingerprint as all over the crime scene. He asked Nancy if she's sure that's what Barker said. She insists that Barker claimed he found as many as four of Freddy's prints. What struck her as odd is that this seemed to be news to Captain Melton too. He let out an audible gasp when Barker revealed the information. Ray agrees, it's very odd. It's almost as if Barker was just making it up on the spot. Now Ray realizes that the whole case against Freddy hinges on the pinky print. It's the only piece of evidence tying him to the crime scene. So he decides to call in a fingerprint expert of his own. Captain Maurice O'Neill is a highly respected and experienced investigator. Like Melchin and Barker, he's an American cop. In fact, he's been the chief of the New Orleans Bureau of Investigation for the last 18 years. O'Neill flies to NASA to review Barker's work in person. He's not impressed. For one thing, O'Neill doesn't even understand why Barker felt it necessary to lift the fingerprints in the first place. The screen is portable, which means the print could have been left in position and analyzed more effectively. He then discovers that Barker failed to take a photograph of the fingerprint on the screen before it was lifted. He only photographed the lifted print on the adhesive tape. There's no trace of the fingerprint on the screen now. So, no proof that it was ever there. Only Barker's word. Kind of fishy, huh? Gets worse. O'Neill would expect to see the texture of the screen's grain in the background of the lifted fingerprint. But it's not there. Instead, there's a different background pattern. Small, neat, regular circles. There's no such design on the screen. So where'd the circles come from? Ray now suspects that Barker didn't lift Freddy's fingerprint from the screen as he claims. He deduces that they must have lifted it from some other object that they knew Freddy, and only Freddy, had handled. Let that sink in for a minute. Ray's expert has just found solid evidence that the cops brought in by the governor planted the fingerprint. How would two officers from Miami, with no personal connection to the case, do something so drastic? Unless, of course, they were acting on behalf of someone else. Someone who either has a personal vendetta against Freddy or just wants this whole investigation to go away and fast. Now armed with evidence, the entire case against his client could be a setup. Ray heads to the jail where Freddy's being held. If Freddy can remember how the police got a hold of his fingerprint, Ray just might be able to save him from the gallows. Since his arrival on the island in late July, Ray's been so engrossed in the case that he's lost track of the days. But it can only have been about a week since he last saw Freddy. Even so, 
the detective notices a marked difference in the aristocrat's appearance since the last time he spoke with him. His face is drawn and he's lost weight. His formerly athletic physique noticeably diminished. His clothes are hanging off him and starting to look grubby. The man's arrogance has evaporated too. He looks tired and anxious, as if he hasn't been sleeping well. Dark rings circle his eyes. The seriousness of the charges he faces seems to have hit home. The date of his trial has been set for October the 18th. With every day that passes, it draws nearer. And he knows that if he's found guilty, he'll hang. No wonder he's had trouble sleeping. Before, Freddy had dismissed Ray as a needless expense. Now, he looks on him as his last hope of salvation. He hangs on his every word, fixing on him with a look of desperate pleading. Ray asks Freddy to go over the time Melchin and Barker questioned him. Freddy explains that on the day after Oakes's body was discovered, he was summoned to Westbourne, where Captain Melchin spoke to him in one of the upstairs rooms. Barker was busy somewhere else. That's not clear why the interview took place at Westbourne and not at the police station. Presumably because that's where Melchin and Barker were, and they wanted to save time. There may have been a psychological reason for it, too. Maybe they wanted to unnerve Freddy by bringing him to the scene of the crime they believe he committed. Freddy recalls that Melchin asked strange, rambling questions. He did his best to answer, but the policeman didn't seem interested in what he had to say. Didn't even take notes, as far as Freddy can recall. There was a table in the room with a couple of glasses and a jug of water on it. Melchin asked Freddy to pour them both the glass and insisted that Freddy take a drink. He also threw a packet of Lucky Strike cigarettes to Freddy, telling him to help himself. Shortly after, Barker poked his head around the door and asked if everything was all right. Melchin replied, yes. The interview was over, but as far as Freddy was concerned, they hadn't really talked about the case at all. A couple of hours later, he was arrested for Harry Oak's murder. When Ray shares his information with O'Neill, his Prince guy, the New Orleans detective has a eureka moment. O'Neill is certain that the print Barker claims he lifted from the Chinese screen didn't come from there at all. Instead, it was taken from the glass of water that Freddie drank from, and he can prove it in court. Freddie's trial for the murder of Harry Oakes begins on October the 18th, 1943, in the Supreme Court of the Bahamas. Reporters from all around the world converge on Nassau for what they're calling the trial of the century. Over a hundred spectators cram themselves into the courtroom to follow the proceedings. One of the first witnesses called is Harold Christie. If you remember, Christie is a close friend of the victim's and was staying at Westbourne's on the night of Oak's murder. Known as the King of the Bahamas, Christie is an influential man in the islands. Ray suspects he knows far more than he's letting on. Christie is ruthlessly cross-examined by the lead defense barrister, the Honorable Godfrey Higgs, 
who hones in on the details that Ray has brought to light. How is it possible that Christie was not disturbed by the cries of his best friend as he was bludgeoned to death and set on fire in the next room? Sweating profusely, Christie can offer no explanation, just as he couldn't when Ray asked him the same question. He's also challenged about a glass of water he tried to make the dead man drink and the blood Ray found on the door handle to his room. Christie is clearly rattled. He loses his temper and angrily shouts at the barrister questioning him. One journalist describes his testimony as unconvincing. Captain Melchin is equally unimpressed. Junior defense lawyer Ernest Callender challenges him on the fingerprint evidence against Freddie. He brings up a detail that Ray had teased out. Melchin's apparent surprise when Captain Barker had told Nancy and her mother what he had found. Melchin admits that he didn't know that his colleague had found a fingerprint until that moment, which meant that Barker had failed to mention it during the 11 days the two men had been working on the case together before then. He hadn't even thought to bring it up as they traveled from Nassau to Maine to speak to the women. Even the judge finds this surprising and is moved to intervene. Captain Melchin, isn't it odd that he did not mention it during the journey? Much to his embarrassment, Melchin is forced to agree. It is odd, but if Captain Melchin seems unreliable as a witness, <laughs> Captain Barker is a disaster. In one extraordinary incident, Barker shows the jury a blue pencil line on the Chinese screen. This line indicates where Freddy's fingerprint was lifted. Barker had previously said that he drew the line himself, as proven by the fact that his initials have been scrawled next to it. But Barker now suddenly denies under oath that he was the one to draw it. Instead, he claims that someone tampered with the evidence drawing over his original line. The courtroom is thrown into disarray. The jury is confused. Both the prosecution and defense lawyers are stunned. The judge is even prompted to get out of his seat and approach the screen to take a closer look. As he sees the judge striding towards him, Barker swiftly goes back on his last statement, saying, I wish to withdraw what I said about the alteration. I find my initials where the blue line is. How's that for a W-turn? In a matter of minutes, the Floridian police captain has changed his story, then changed it right back. Barker is exposed as either incompetent or dishonest or both. Ray's own judgment on the two Miami detectives' handling of the case is scathing. In Rupert Hughes' biography of Schindler, The Complete Detective, Ray is quoted as saying, I shall never understand how any honest investigator could have permitted this to happen. He's chosen his words carefully, but the implication seems to be that he thinks Melchin and Barker are liars. Next, it's Freddie's turn to take the stand. Newsweek's correspondent sets the scene. Once he had been debonair and reckless, winking at witnesses and waving to friends from the wooden prisoner's cage. But on November 4th, when he stood to testify under oath, de Medigny was a solemn, tight-lipped man fighting for his life. 
Freddy gives evidence for an exhausting four and a half hours. To raise relief, there's no sign of the arrogance that the Count had shown when he first met him. He appears calm and, more importantly, credible. In stark contrast to the prosecution's main witnesses, Christy, Melchin, and Barker. Freddy's defense lawyer asks him about the time when Freddy was questioned by Captain Melchin at Westbourne. Freddy describes how Melchin had seemed more interested in getting him to drink a glass of water than answer his questions. His barrister concludes by asking him outright, Did you kill Sir Harry Oakes? Without missing a beat, Freddy replies, No, sir. Freddy keeps his composure when he's cross-examined by the Crown. Even when his playboy lifestyle is placed under the microscope, and he's portrayed as an unscrupulous money-grabber, Freddy calmly sticks to his story. When Oakes was murdered, he was at home in bed. As Ray watches the proceedings, he can sense the mood of the courtroom swing in Freddy's favor. The prosecution's case is unraveling, but the final thread is pulled when Maurice O'Neill, the New Orleans fingerprint expert brought in by Ray, is called to give evidence. O'Neill's testimony provides the most sensational moment in the trial, with an exchange worthy of the best courtroom dramas. Defense barrister Godfrey Higgs is asking O'Neill about the circles that appear in the background of Freddy's pinky print, the one that Barker claims to have lifted from the Chinese screen. O'Neill explains that they couldn't possibly have come from there because there's no sign of any pattern like that on the screen. So Higgs asks him, what could have caused the circles? With a conjurer's flourish, O'Neill reaches into his jacket pocket and whips out a glass tumbler decorated with a design of printed red circles, exactly matching those visible on the lifted print. The prosecution lawyer leaps to his feet to object, but the objection is overruled. The judge explains to the jury that the defense isn't saying that the print was lifted from this particular glass. They're just trying to show that it could have come from a similar glass. And just to be clear, at no point does the defense lawyer say that the glass Freddy handled during the interrogation had this kind of pattern. He doesn't need to. The jurors will make that leap themselves. To be honest, it's a little bit of courtroom showmanship. A sleight of hand, almost. But it makes the point. There's no proof that the incriminating print came from the screen. It could just as easily have come from a glass like the one O'Neill had produced. The strategy is designed to put doubt in the jury's mind, because the jury knows that if they have any reasonable doubt at all, they must acquit Freddy. The headline in the Nassau Daily Tribune the next day spells it out. Defense suggests evidence fabricated. In his closing statement, Freddie's lead barrister, Godfrey Higgs, tears apart the flimsy circumstantial evidence against his client, in particular, the fingerprint evidence on which the whole case rests. He also destroys the two motives that the prosecution has put forward. As Ray discovered... During his investigation, there's no evidence that de Medigny was after Oak's fortune. 
I mean, he is a successful businessman in his own right. And if he killed Oaks because he hated him, why had it taken him so long? He hadn't spoken to Oaks for three months and hadn't been to Westbourne for two years. Of course, Freddie may have been nurturing a simmering resentment, but there's some evidence that the differences between the two men were exaggerated. Once, after giving Freddie the rough edge of his tongue, Oaks turned to his son Sidney and said, Not a bad sort to Medigny. You have to get to know these Frenchies. And often, Freddie's reaction to his father-in-law's outburst was just to shrug him off. The two men seemed to get along fine, provided they never saw each other. Higgs concludes, I believe, gentlemen, you can return only one verdict, and that a unanimous one of not guilty. In his view, to condemn Freddie to death by finding him guilty, quote, would be a greater crime than the slaying of Sir Harry Oakes. Finally, on November the 12th, 1943, after 25 grueling days of trial, the jury retires to consider their verdict. For the death penalty to be delivered, a unanimous guilty verdict is required. But for Freddie to be acquitted, a majority decision in his favor is enough. Just under two hours after the jury retired, the word gets around that they've reached a verdict. Freddie's hurried back into the court to hear it. Gentlemen, are you agreed on a verdict? Demands the registrar. Yes, we are, answers the foreman. How say you? Is the prisoner guilty or not guilty of the offense with which he is charged? Not guilty. The Nassau Daily Tribune describes the reaction. Women sprang to their feet and cheered. The police shouted, order, but the bedlam was unabated. Finally, they threatened to clear the court. The foreman of the jury tries to make himself heard over the noise. He delivered the verdict, but it seems he has more to say. When the judge finally manages to restore order, the foreman reveals that the verdict was split, nine to three. It's the lowest majority allowed without being a hung jury requiring a retrial. He then makes an extraordinary statement. Although the jury have found Freddie not guilty, they've attached a condition to the acquittal. They demand that Freddie be immediately deported from the Bahamas. Hang on a second. What exactly are they saying? Deported? As in kicked out of the country? Or what? The very same jury has literally just found him not guilty. As the judge makes clear, there's no legal basis for such a condition. It cannot be enforced. So why'd the jury make it? It seems that the bizarre rioter was a compromise brought about to avoid a mistrial. Four of the jurors are members of the strict puritanical sect, the Plymouth Brethren. They were very influenced by all the salacious gossip about Freddie, some of which found its way into the prosecution's case. They seemed to believe that even if Freddie wasn't guilty of murdering Oakes, he was guilty of being a disreputable scoundrel. So, for a long time, the four Puritans held out against acquitting Freddie. The jury was split eight to four, 
which would result in a new trial, something everyone was keen to avoid. Eventually, the most moderate of the Plymouth Brethren was persuaded to change his verdict to not guilty. In return, it was agreed that the jury would add the demand for Freddy's deportation. Although the condition has no legal standing, it has one very important supporter. The governor of the Bahamas, Edward, the Duke of Windsor, had taken himself away from the island for the duration of the trial. He reveals his reasons in a letter to the Secretary of State for the colonies. He says, I purposely absented myself and the Duchess from the colony during the de Medigny trial to avoid adverse publicity. I did not want to be dragged into sordid and vulgar daily newspaper reports. Another way of looking at it is that he didn't want anyone criticizing his decisions, especially the one to bring in the now discredited American cops. Also, if he wasn't around, he couldn't be called on to testify. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Now that the trial is over, the Duke takes a keen interest in the outcome, throwing his weight behind the highly irregular call for deportation. Perhaps he wants Freddy out of the way. Knowing that the disgruntled count continue to be a thorn in his side, and presumably continue to make insulting remarks at his expense. Within hours of the verdict, an official request for a deportation order is cabled to the colonial office in London. The request is turned down. Freddie is free to remain in the Bahamas. After Freddie is acquitted on November the 12th, defense lawyer Godfrey Higgs throws a party in his client's honor. Ray's invited. He takes along one of the experts he called in to help him work the case. The surprise guest is Leonard Keeler, the inventor of the polygraph machine. As it happens, Keeler played no active part in the investigation. Ray may not have realized that, unlike in certain American states, Polygraph evidence is not admissible under UK law, which is the legal system in the Bahamas. Still, Keeler gets to go to the party, and Ray has him bring his invention along, just for fun. They play a little parlor game. Keeler wires guests up to the lie detector and asks them embarrassing questions. You know, that sort of thing. You know, did you eat the last piece of cake, or are you wearing any underwear? 
Have you ever cheated on your wife? Ray suggests Freddy has a go. It's a chance to prove his accusers wrong once and for all. Freddy flashes the detective a warning look and shakes his head angrily. He came here to relax and put the trial behind him. The last thing he wants to do is bring it all up again. But Ray won't let it go. He challenges Freddy. If he's got nothing to hide, he's got nothing to fear. The machine doesn't lie, even if the person wired up to it does. And Mr. Keeler is the world's best polygraph operator. Freddy couldn't be in safer hands. Now the other guests join in, egging him on with the usual drunken chant, do it, do it, do it. They may be Freddy's friends, most of them, but even they have a lingering suspicion. They want the question settled beyond a doubt. Did he do it? Eventually, Freddy sees there's only one way to shut him up. He agrees to do the test. It takes a few moments for Keeler to set up the various bits of kit that will register Freddy's responses. The inflatable tube around his arm for blood pressure, the electrodes on his skin for conductivity. Keeler starts off by firing a few soft questions. Then, at Ray's prompting, hits him with the big one. Did you kill Harry Oaks? The room falls silent. Somewhere, someone gasps. Everyone holds their breath as they wait for Freddy's answer. Finally, it comes. No. Freddy's voice is calm but firm. He doesn't blink or look away as he gives his answer. Everyone leaves forward to see if the polygraph bears him out. He's telling the truth, announces Keeler. There's a huge cheer from the other guests. They crowd in to pat Freddy on the back. The very people who a moment ago wondered if he might be a brutal murderer are now falling over themselves to say they never doubted him. Freddie may have passed the polygraph test at the party, but he remains the only person ever charged in connection with the death of Sir Harry Oaks. The police close the investigation. One gets the impression that those in authority want the Bahamas to move on from this unfortunate affair as quickly as possible. The residents, on the other hand, remain hungry for answers. As one female socialite remarks, I'll always have to wonder if I'm dancing with the murderer of Sir Harry Oaks. And although Freddy's not deported, after his ordeal, the island paradise suddenly seems a lot less hospitable. The hostility towards the expat elite, which had always been there in the background, is now out in the open. The jurors who called for his deportation spoke for many. People just don't seem to like Count Alfred de Menigny. Eventually, reluctantly, Freddy leaves the Bahamas. He and Nancy attempt to make a new life in Cuba as guests of his friend, Ernest Hemingway. But their marriage is unable to withstand the trauma of the Oaks murder and Freddy's trial. The couple soon separate. Freddy becomes something of a drifter, moving around the Americas, before settling in Houston, where he dies 
1998 at the ripe old age of 87. But the question remains, if Freddie Domenigny didn't kill Harry Oakes, who did? It's a question Ray Schindler was never hired to answer. His brief was simply to prove Freddie's innocence, and in that, he succeeded. But the mystery continues to obsess him. In 1944, Ray writes an article for Inside Detective Magazine entitled, I Could Crack the Oaks Case Wide Open. In it, he reveals that he has offered his services to the governor of the Bahamas to find the real murderer. His offer was declined. Perhaps the Duke has reasons of his own for not wanting the case reopened. In Murder Midas, Charlotte Gray's 2019 book about the case, the author reveals an intriguing detail. Remember when Melchin was interviewing Freddie at Westbourne and encouraged him to handle a glass of water? Citing the Nassau Daily Tribune as her main source, Gray reveals that while that was going on, there was someone else present in the house, the governor himself. <laughs> you heard right. Edward, the Duke, was actually in the murder room conferring with Captain Barker while the main suspect was being grilled. According to Gray, the two men spoke for 20 minutes. What on earth did they talk about? This has never been revealed. Perhaps he was merely checking that the American detectives had everything they needed. We can imagine that he was impressing on Barker the need to solve the case as quickly as possible. Whether that extended to pointing the detective in the direction of the man he thought was responsible, well, we can't say. Well, we certainly have no evidence that he explicitly encouraged Barker to plant evidence. That may have all been down to Barker's own initiative and his understanding of what he thought the Duke wanted him to do. The only thing we do know for certain is that soon after their conference, Alfred de Menigny was arrested for murder on evidence that appears to have been fabricated by the two detectives personally brought in by the governor. Now, this isn't to say that the Duke of Windsor killed Harry Oakes, merely that he may have coordinated a cover-up. But on whose behalf? One possibility is the Duke's Swedish industrial friend, Axel Venner Gren. Remember him? We encountered him briefly last time. He was widely suspected of being a Nazi agent. Venner Gren owned Hog Island, just off the north coast of New Providence, near Nassau. During World War II, he had carried out extensive works there, hiring laborers to dig canals and create a safe harbor against hurricanes. There were rumors that he was preparing the ground for a U-boat base in the Bahamas from where Nazi invasions of the U.S. could be launched. Certainly from 1942 on, there were sightings of German submarines in the area. The theory is that Sir Harry Oakes found out about Venner Gren's plans and was threatening to blow the whistle. As intriguing as all this is, it's just wild speculation 
without any evidence to back it up. In fact, the canals that Venner Gren constructed were too narrow for U-boats. A more plausible suggestion is Harold Christie, the real estate mogul and so-called King of the Bahamas. And it seems likely that this is who Ray suspected, though he is careful never to put his suspicions into print. If he was involved, Christie probably didn't commit the crime himself. It's more likely he would have paid a hitman or hitmen who tried to cover their traces by setting the body on fire in a clumsy attempt to make it look like an obey a ritual. But if that's so, what could Christie's motive have been? It has been said that there are only four motives for murder. Lust, love, loathing, and loot. The theory is that in Christie's case, it was loot. Oakes's financial arrangements are opaque, particularly when viewed from a distance, but he was strongly motivated by a desire to avoid taxes. That's why he was in the Bahamas in the first place. It seems that Oakes had heard a rumor that the authorities were coming after him for a big chunk of his fortune. Always one step ahead, he was planning to transfer his money out of the Bahamas to Mexico. For Christie, this was bad news. Oakes had invested heavily in Christie's business, and now he wanted his money out. The speculation is that Christie didn't have the funds anymore. Or maybe he just didn't want to give it back. In other words, dead men can't call in debts. Whether or not Christie was involved in Oak's death, long after the case, he continues to live and thrive in the Bahamas. He's even knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1964 and dies in 1973. Earl Stanley Gardner, one of the journalists who covered the Domenigny trial, will later describe the Oaks case as perhaps the most mysterious and baffling murder of all time. Gardner had a chance to watch Ray Schindler operate up close. As a former trial lawyer himself, Gardner had hired private investigators to help him with cases. He was well qualified to appreciate Ray's skills and qualities. Gardner describes the atmosphere of distorted rumors and feverish speculation that provided the background to the case. Throughout it all, Ray managed to keep his mental perspective. He heard everything, saw everything, and investigated everything. In Gardner's words, always his mind was cold and calm, detached and deadly, as though the man had been some calculating machine. The Oaks murder is the most high-profile case of Ray Schindler's long and varied career, but it's not the last time he succeeds in clearing the name of a man unjustly accused of murder. Ray is often portrayed as someone who enjoyed celebrity and the trappings that come with it, but he was just as much motivated by a strong sense of justice. This commitment continues to the end of his career from 1948 to 1959. Ray collaborates with Earl Stanley Gardner on a project called The Court of Last Resort. The purpose is to investigate the cases of men 
convicted of murder, who protest their innocence. By 1950, after only two years of operation, a court of last resort secures the release of three innocent men serving sentences for murder. No doubt, his experience in the Harry Oaks case drove his future campaign for justice. And to this day, the mystery of who killed Sir Harry Oaks remains unsolved. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Los Angeles in the 1980s, an era of glamour and excess in the city of angels. But its glittering facade often hides dark secrets. When Detective Leslie Zoller of the Beverly Hills Police Department receives a missing persons report, he initially assumes it'll be an easy case. He'll ask a few questions, put up a few posters, and be done with it. Little does he know, he's about to embark on one of the strangest investigations of his career. Soon, his search for a missing person will become a hunt for a killer as he unravels a stranger-than-fiction conspiracy with a shadowy group at its center, known as the Billionaire Boys Club. Oh.